0: Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, And as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system Or downregulate. Now for most of us that come off shift we are a exhausted and b do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download NuCalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on NewCalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show actor, volunteer, firefighter, and friend, Bobby Burke. Now, in this second conversation, we discuss a host of topics from the recent actor strike Some notable calls in uniform, firefighter and mental health, fitness, the inability to save, the importance of experts on film sets, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back onto the show, Bobby Burke. Enjoy. Well, Bobby, I want to start by saying, firstly, obviously, welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. The last conversation we had was episode 529, which was October of 2021. And the beautiful thing about the way that interview ended after we'd heard about a lot of the you know, the acting side, your journey into to Hollywood, as it were, but also how nine eleven sent you into the fire service is at the very end of the interview, you got banged out on a call. And that was it. Music fades in and, and you're off to uh, to respond. So um, firstly, I want to welcome you back. But secondly, that was by far the most epic ending of a podcast <laughs> I've done in 852 so far.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, thank you, James. It's great to be back. It's an honor. It's a it's a privilege. And um, anytime anybody wants to talk to me about anything, I'm humble. <laughs> um If I remember correctly, and I could go back into my calendar, uh, I think it was a medevac for an elderly woman who had uh, broken her hip. And if you you break a hip or if there's any nerve damage or anything of a certain order, you know, the calibration and the designations of the um, medical calls here, uh, you're going to go out by helicopter. So we do a lot of um, medevacs. We've done 30 this year. The year's not over. Um, But, yeah, I specifically remember (laughs) – Wrapping up with you and getting toned out.
0: Yeah, it was amazing. Now, since then, we're talking almost two years now. What have been some of the career calls that you remember the last couple of years since we chatted?
1: Oh, you mean like big jobs? Yes. Uh, we had a couple of good jobs. Um, I had a job in the toward the end of September. It was a 93, 93 degrees out. And I just happened to be, uh, you know, Really able to turn out quite quickly, you know, gearing up. And one of the other members came in and said, "We have a, a working structure, taxpayer, and it's it's going." So, you know, uh, we got there, we hooked up. I had this brilliant uh, pump operator, chauffeur, uh, who was one of our assistant chiefs, Drew Becker. Communication between he and I was really good. So, I've been practicing the Minuteman deployment for the. Uh, lays the inch and three quarters. And, you know, some guys are getting it, some guys are not. You know, what I found out on that call is you need some clearance, in fr- you know, on the side of the truck to to get it off the truck. And I, and I was like, uh-oh, there's this, like, wall in front of me. So I said to Drew Becker, the chief, I said, can you help me get this load on my shoulder? And somebody was videotaping us. I suppose you, you see the work together. And I said, no, really help me get this off So I was able to stack uh, 50 feet and carry another 50 and then have them stretch another 50. Um, You know, we knocked the rooms down pretty effectively. It was on the second story. Um, One of the fire marshals said, somebody says, this is your nightmare box because there's a lot of, you know, migrant kids who live upstairs, seasonal workers, and they sleep uh, many to a room. And uh, I always told the guys when we drill or, doing a building inspection, throw ladders. If we ever get anything, throw ladders, throw ladders. Uh, these kids won't be able to get out. And it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, quite hot. Uh, so that was a good job. And then, you know, a couple of residential structure fires. One I describe as a large volume of fire, but not a dangerous fire somehow. And the other was just smoke coming out of all parts of the house, and you couldn't we couldn't find the fire. So that's a dangerous fire. Um and they dedicated the first line in the back i went in the back and the camera was up couldn't find any fire so get this line out of here we're going in the front door close that door on the way out we went in the front door underneath the stairwell uh there was a good uh, fire going and we knocked it down but the fire had climbed up the wainscot all the way to three stories of the house so we had good stairs and we just made our way up so And then the rest is just, you know, your basic bread and butter, you know, uh, down power lines, odor of gas, uh, dumpsters, things like that. But every once in a while you get a good residential structure and uh, uh, and you're lucky when you have good guys with you that, you know, uh, are dedicated and trained and uh, know their jobs because it's come as you are, you know. You may be a good nozzle man, but you're throwing a ladder today or you may or vice versa. So, um, you know, on all those calls, everybody was pretty heads up and uh, there was absolutely no one injured um, uh, resident or member of the department. So that was that's always good.
0: When you talked about trying to clear the Minuteman, man that reminded me and i don't know if it's a Minuteman man fold or a triple layer. i think it was a Minuteman. man they used to call it the freeway pool in anaheim so if mm. it was the Minuteman, man and, and forgive me some people listening engine companies are probably screaming at me now but my brain is like a colander once i stopped doing the job everything fell out <sighs> but um you grab one loop each and you walk opposite directions and i think whichever lay it was it was obviously a cross lay it would actually put a perfect s on the ground and now you deploy but you can literally do it in an alleyway even the same as when we were taught ladders in the florida fire academy was ladders on the floor you know you walk over you um how do we do it oh my goodness i so think you was like suitcase carried it to the wall then you laid it flat against the wall then you climb the rungs up well, that works so well on a concrete draw ground with no bushes, cars, fences. <laughs> but then I went it's... to Anaheim and they showed me how to how to actually shoulder a ladder, you know, high shoulder, you know, single man throw, single person throw. Don't worry about rotating it; just tie it off and get your ass up there. And then again, it's like okay, we're taught these things in fire academy, but then you get in the real world. It doesn't mean it's the wrong one specifically, but some things work really well and in a very versatile. But some you're like okay that. That does work but only in that one situation and maybe this different um this different hose load or this different ladder throw is actually more universal when it comes to the fire ground because i've to this day still haven't been on a fire in a concrete building with no obstacles in the way
1: yeah and you know no obstacles and mr murphy showing up um what did i do i got off the rig uh without a pack on, uh, I had two newer members with me who came upstairs, no tools, no nothing, no camera. So the recordings of the operation, you hear me say after I have a good meal, uh, hey, brother, can you send me a pack up? So then you're like, oh, how about a couple of hooks and a small roof ladder? Oh, and uh, you know, bring a camera up. You know, so like... <laughs>
0: Door dash all so, this shit to the second and floor. Door dash
1: DoorDash <laughs> into the same. I'm so preoccupied with uh, that statement. As the first line goes, so goes the fire, and getting it dedicated uh, with composure, get it dedicated with, um, you know, accurately and uh, uh, seamlessly. And so you can, I got a little tunnel vision there. You know, uh, I just did not want to wait another because we had good chunky smoke working and I, I didn't want to wait another minute. I knew I could operate exteriorly um, for the first few minutes to keep it out of the cock loft, this common loft, uh, and then, uh, you know, have a pack brought up to me, um, which is what happened. I mean, I was only up there for five minutes before I sent one of the kids to get a, uh, a back, a pack uh, and some hooks. <laughs> yeah, so, it's the volunteer fire service where what, you know, that's the side of the street that I'm on. And um, you just hope that uh, no one gets hurt and that everybody goes home and that, you know, you do the job as efficiently as possible and as professionally as possible.
0: When we think of the professional fire service, the more progressive, more um, humble firefighters are really starting to understand now, you know, Clean cab, and again, it's it's like calling national health socialized medicine. Clean cab doesn't mean surgical; it just means not having off-gassing gear all over your, you know, your cab, and putting the pack in a separate compartment. Which, as a tillerman in California, I'm a huge fan of because you can't wear a pack in the, in the back of a tiller truck. So you get down, and then you throw it on. You realize it takes, you know, six seconds to snap an SCBA on your back. But um, you know, we we're starting to get there. We we're realizing that we're already immunocompromised just through the shift work and everything else. And now we're talking about PFAS in our gear so that the fewer insults to our immune system we can get the better. So, you know, having as clean a gear as you can, whatever that looks like is important these days. How is that being received in in your space in the volunteer world in your department specifically?
1: It's being received very, very, very well. Uh, I came into my department at a kind of a, Uh, transitional time where the older members were, you know, phasing out and the younger people were coming in. I I was 41, but I'm talking about, you know, people 18, 19, 20, you don't have to explain to them, uh, you know, the whole salty thing to them. That's, that's ridiculous. Why would I wear, you know, gear with toxins on it? You know, um, in the old days when what was off gassing was, uh, wood and cloth and cotton yeah sure you get sooty all you like but they're just more aware that there's you know pyroplastic dripping on them and um petroleum-based you know fuel so and I, i speak for myself i've seen way too many uh of my friends die of uh crazy cancers you know you know, you talk about, you know, washing your hoods and, you know, cancers around the neck, cancers, skin cancers, uh, testicular cancer. I mean, it's it's never ending. There's always somebody in the on deck circle just like, he. you know, he died. He died. He's he's there's so many people sick now that I think that's what's, uh, you know, you'd be you, you don't have to impress anybody any longer with with the data. You know, it's 2023. The data is here. This shit's killing us. Wash your gear.
0: Absolutely. Well, what about from your world? I want to get to to the acting strike and you know moving forward as well. But while we're on this topic, our profession on the professional side, on the career side. Excuse me, that's the wrong term. The career side, not professional side, because you guys are as well. <laughs> um, We're having a a, a real problem recruiting at the moment. And through my eyes from the career side, there's many reasons, um, everything from a shrinking population that actually can because of the obesity crisis and screens and gaming and all that stuff. Um, But also, there's a lot more transparency now in what it's really like to be a professional, excuse me, a career firefighter. Um, you know, and the things that come along with that, you know, the, the, pay actually, when you break it down, isn't great. And, you know, you get told at seven 30, you can't go home for your kid's birthday. And this generation now is, is able to access the raw truth about the fire service. And you and I love this profession. And I stayed a firefighter my whole life, never promoted because I loved kicking in doors and cutting cars <laughs> and sawing roofs and everything else. So it's not about the love of the job, but you know, the love of the job doesn't stop someone ending up in a casket with bagpipes playing and someone playing the last call. Nothing fucking heroic about that at all. So I think on our side, people when they're comparing professions now are weighing it up and going, "Mm, love the idea of it, but the reality doesn't seem to fit where I want to be in the next 10, 20 years. So until we change the career side and make the work week more conducive to health and naturally Pay these men and women enough so they don't have to have second or third jobs. That is, you know, one of the, the barriers I think that, that's created or such an issue with us. Now you come out of a pandemic where community and togetherness and service wasn't exactly the buzz topic. <laughs> it was stay at home, protect yourself, everyone else is a murderer. You know, pretty, pretty toxic, <laughs> divisive uh, <laughs> conversations. So now we're coming out the other end and we're asking for volunteerism and community when it comes to the volunteer firefighter. So what have you seen as far as the impact of um, recruitment on the volunteer side the last few years?
1: Well, it's a great question. Um, I have to be honest and say, I haven't given it a lot of thought, but you know what, when we're done with this, I'm going to look into it. I I have one observation to make, and I I think, I I hope it's, an accurate one across the board. The And I say kids, I don't mean to be disparaging or anything. The young people, because sensibly they are young people and volunteer, the people you are getting are of a higher quality. We have like several members who, you know, they're new. They come in twos and threes. I'd love for them to come in eights and tens and twelves, but they're, they don't. Or, Initially, they come in, you know, a, a class of eight, and then, you know, of course, that guy's not going to make it. That guy's, a, and they pair down, down and pair down, and the guys that you're and gals that you're left with, and I, I'm going to say gals too, because it's unbelievable the quality of of people that we have joining. So the ones that you are left with have been just stellar, outstanding. Like I can't even. This is my own little, folly corner. I have been fantastic. So, uh, yeah, uh, fire service is not, you know, a work from home, you know, uh, a prospect. It's just a, pro- a proposition. It's, it's the exact opposite. There was a time when yourself, James and me and Jimmy, we could get a, you know, uh, rent a, an apartment or a house and, you know, we could afford it. Those times were gone. Everything is very, very expensive. So, uh, to make a living as a firefighter. Firefighters traditionally always had, you know, a side job. Um, but uh, yeah. It, it, and and then I think a big turnoff is uh, the amount of material that they are responsible for. I remember in my community, we don't have a lot of hazardous materials. We don't have hazardous materials, uh, a, a great deal of them coming through. We have chlorine, we have propane. I um, I guess, various others, but it's not like we have railroad cars of, you know, trichloro-trifluoroethane driving through. All by way of saying, I think that there's uh, uh, just so much material that these kids are responsible for. You know, Joey didn't want to go to college. He wants to stay in his town and be a mechanic. And he's going to be a volunteer firefighter. But now he finds out he has 148 hours of classroom. And three weeks of hands-on training, all at night in a row. Got to be there. Um, it, you know, I, I I don't mean to disparage it or or split the difference, but there's got to be some way. There is no way you got to do it. You just got to do it. You know, because I mean? you, you never know what what's going to be asked of you. That's the nature of the of the service. So, um, you know, when I took my written, it was fifty questions. Then it was hundred. Now it's one hundred and fifty. It's just exponentially. Keeps getting more and more. Um, I joke sometimes. If you break your fingernail, they're going to send you out to the county academy for eight hours of how not to break your fingernail. You know, a little bit of it can be overkill, um, but uh, but I guess it all serves a purpose. Um, you know, the National Fire Protection Association is always just trying to uh, render, you know, a safe you know, algorithm over what is inherently an unsafe, uh, vocation. So, uh, you know, there's going to be push and pull, I suppose, in that, and that griping, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it is hard to recruit. I, I see, you know, when we tell kids, Oh yeah, every time that horn blows, if you're a probie, you're expected to show up and they're like, every time I'm like, yeah, bro, you don't get to, pay. That, that, that there is a self-centeredness, um, in a new, in the newer generation, but I suppose every generation says that. But nowadays I think it's more just pervasive in terms of I, 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 me, me, me. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, kids these days are always looking for, you know, aggressively minded kids like, Oh, to, to volunteer and to change the world and to, uh, to help out and, it's a wonderful way to do it. It's just, you're not, it's not a half measure you're in a hundred percent and you're learning to de- how to do it 110%. So uh, that might be uh, not as attractive to them as they initially had thought.
0: Absolutely. Well, since we spoke, it's funny for people listening we recorded, what was it like a month ago now? And both yes. of us were <laughs> mentally wrecked. So we literally trashed that interview and here we are doing part two. Uh, but that time there was a actor's strike. Now I'm glad you know that we're at the other end and you guys are ramping up again for the new year. So now, retrospectively, talk to me as an actor about that experience. And then I'm I'm curious from the union point of view, because as as a volunteer, as you said to me before, you're not in a union as a firefighter, but you are as an actor. So it'd be interesting to see the the parallels maybe between your union and the union is, for example, uh, FDNY's union and what you've observed in your brothers there and sisters. Um,
1: well, as I mean, just this afternoon, I voted yes on the new contract. I'm not entirely happy with it, but I'm a business person. So I'm always looking to compromise, not my values or ethics or anything like that, but, you know, uh, uh agreements, let's say, um, I would like everybody to get back to work fairly. The problem sometimes is that, you know, if these were not if these were tough times for movie studios and networks, uh I could understand their you know not wanting to give in or give a little more, but these are banner record shattering profit years. And the fact that there is very little, uh, profit sharing. You know, when we're asking things like a a little bump into our healthcare, um, a little bump here, a little bump there, there are certain scales over which actors get paid that haven't changed in 30 years. Now, the other side of that is I hear my immigrant doc worker bartender superintendent of the building father in my head going get a fucking real job well yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the fact but the fact of the matter is you know uh, uh entertainment is is uh it can be you know it's impervious to depression or recession you know like booze you know people want to go watch movies watch television uh and it's long hours you know it's it can be 16 18 hour days uh uh, I've had people on sets with me freeze their ass off or sweat their ass. Off. Like when, when, Oh my God, when is this over? It's like when it's when they tell us and, and you have to be up at four o'clock to come back. Yeah. So, you know, it, it can be a grind. It can be a grind. Then there's the memory aspect. You know, you, you have to oh, I have 22 pages of memorization and I get there and I'm ready to go. But tell me, Oh no, you're not memorizing that. You're memorizing this. We're changing it all. You know, a lot of stress. You want to do your best. The strike. One of the big sticking points was artificial intelligence. They get to scan Robert Burke. He can stay home tomorrow. We'll just use his image. It's like, no, you, won't. you know what I mean? Uh, Robert's going to do four takes, and the producer says, "That's it. No more. We'll just use the computer to get it right because he flubbed the line." Well, you know, I'd like to do a fifth take because it's all money. It's all. You know, they calibrate it down to the last little nickel and you're making, uh, art pretty much. Um, you, you hope that it's artistic. Uh, and so to, you know, lay this artificial intelligence and in this computer, this robotic type of machination over it is, uh, it's kind of, uh, ridiculous. Um, uh, you become indignant. You're like, really, you know, h- how do you get AI and, uh, you know, the work of, uh, you know, John Gielgud or Lawrence Olivier, or how are they synonymous? Not that I'm either one of those guys. I'm just saying, you know, um, you want to go see a movie made by robots and a computer, or do you want to go see a movie made by humans? It'll be up to you pretty soon to tell you the truth. Um, I'd rather see movies made by humans, and um,
0: you know, do special. I I don't want to see Backdraft (laughs) 2 again, and that was made by humans.
1: (laughs) I, I, I I think I saw bits and pieces of Backdraft one, and I couldn't. I, you know, I, I had no idea what was happening. I said, "This is." I just didn't understand what was happening at all. You know, guys hanging from pipes, and I'm like, really? You know, I just didn't get it. Um, You know, the funny thing about the fire service in movies, people don't understand, when when the fire is really going, this is what you see. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's about it. Right. So uh, it's very hard to make movies about fire. I remember when we were doing Rescue Me and the fire gag people were, you know, they were very cognizant because they had FDNY guys on the set with them all the time, you know, trying to help and enhance and, and make it as real as possible. But getting back to the contract, I think we got, you know, incremental bumps. It's a three-year deal. Um, the union has always been really good at keeping you safe, you know, um, just in terms of, you know, getting to the set, getting home from the set with enough sleep, um, you know, the conditions, of the working conditions, protecting yourself, uh, children who work, that they should have tutors, that they should not work so long, because obviously we're, we're in a business that they will take anything they can get, um, and you need to have these uh, these union, you know, uh, 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 what's the uh, labor, uh, you know, united labor uh, uh, to to for protection, or otherwise you'll be just taken advantage of. It harkens back to the days of, um, you know, Mary Pickford and United Artists. These actors were getting worked into the ground and they said, you know what? We're going to start our own studio and make our own films. And they did. Um, But um, unified labor. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Sometimes it goes off the extreme end. Unions can ask for crazy things, but. As actors, we weren't asking for anything crazy. We were just asking for a fair deal.
0: One of the things I've had a few, few uh stump people on there. Obviously, that was my side side hustle, as they say. Um, but I never really worked as a stump man on movies. I worked on the World Trade Center film, but it was really as a glorified extra playing an FDMY firefighter. So mm-hmm. I got to a, a experience what you're talking about like oh wow this is not fast or exciting <laughs> actually on set. It, is,
1: it is neither of those
0: things <laughs> the, the final result is amazing but uh yeah um hurry up and wait is definitely uh, a thing there um but uh but some of my friends are you know one of my good friends steve Dunlevy, who actually worked in japan 22 years ago as a stunt man he's now phenomenal he, he works with uh, keanu reeves and you know all kinds of people at a very high level um but you realize that that organization has very little representation they don't they don't think they don't even get awards in the Oscars now when you look at how many action films there are and you know we're recognizing everyone from makeup to costume to set to uh, et etc et cetera but the person that's almost dying <laughs> for the actor is not getting recognized so what about that? Have you had a kind of perspective on that side? you mean from the stuntman? well just just as an actor i mean what's have you heard I'm, rumblings listen, or you know of of that group of people?
1: Uh, no, but I, I I've worked with a lot of stunt guys. I've worked with the top 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 people. Um, you know, the Stuntman's Association within the community of the Screen Actors Guild within the community of filmmaking—they're venerated. Do you know what I mean? They're—I perceive them as almost scientists because you need to calibrate and measure and weigh and, uh, understand a lot of stuff to make certain of these stunts come off. Well, the stuntmen I've worked with over the years, I found to be probably some of the most interesting guys I've met in, in, in the business. Uh, I'm in touch with one fella. He's also a judge, a UFC judge, um, they listen you know when I did Robocop it was my third movie and um Russell towery was my was my uh he just told me to make uh oh I forget what he used to say make my dialogue sound good Burke um this guy <laughs> You're this working guy for took, him <laughs> oh yeah I was working for him This guy took shots like you couldn't believe, you know, blown up in the air because they did everything to RoboCop because they figured, well, here's an actor. Here's a stunt guy with all this body armor on. Let's just shoot at him. Let's let's shoot zirconium bullets right at him. It happened to me one night and they just thought by virtue of wearing the costume that I'd be protected. Well, I I was yelling because they were cutting me in half with these. They're like they're like paintballs. But when they hit something hard, they spark. There's Zerks. I don't. Know. They don't use any of this stuff anymore because it can all be um, computer, you know, image graphic. In but um, yeah, the I don't know. I, I I suppose the stuntmen know who they are, and you know um, they've always done such a great job. But again, the level of what's being asked of them in terms of danger. And, you know, spectacle and thrill uh, is always going up. You know, it just seems to me that when I read about or find out about some stunt, you know, in this film, they did this. or You see some of these um, stunts that Tom Cruise has been able to affect himself. There's a funny story somebody tells, I think it was Matt Damon telling a story about Tom Cruise Tom is telling the stunt coordinator, I don't want to do this. And the guy says, Oh no, that's just too dangerous. So Matt says, well, what did you do? He goes, well, I got another stunt coordinator. (laughs) um, (laughs) It's game on, it's game up. I'm, I'm 63. I hope not to be involved in many more stunts. I've done a lot of my own fights. Um, I've done a good share of my own stunt work, but again, uh, I hope these guys get what they need and what they want uh, because it's, it's very, very, very dangerous what they do.
0: I had a guest a while ago now, English stunt woman, um, Olivia Jackson, mm. and she worked on resident evil three. I think it was, which I'm assuming was still SAG. Um, mm. But they shot in, I think it was Romania and she's on a motorbike she actually had a you know, motocross background. So she's on a motorbike and going towards the camera on a boom. Well, the boom operator didn't lift it up for the kind of over the head shot, and she slammed into it. God knows how fast it literally ripped her arm was still attached, but everything internally, the, oh, the, really? the blood vessels, I thing they were able to reattach, but all the nerves were severed. I mean, you know, all kinds of damage. Um, and she's an amazing woman. She's, she's gone back to you know, martial arts and riding all wow. kinds of things. But I mean, completely life catastrophic life changing injuries to the point where her, her 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 excuse me her arm was numb, so she opted to have it cut off it was still you know had blood supply and everything but she's like it's just annoying. <laughs> I can't feel anything I can't do anything with it. it's never gonna work again, so she's got it amputated yeah, so that was the big thing I think with the stunt world was the protection like the insurance like if something goes wrong, do you have our back and I think it's certainly in that production she was kind of left high and dry somewhat so So yeah, this is the the dark side of the stunt world.
1: Yeah, there is a dark side, especially when you're off campus, like you're not shooting in Culver City or, you know, one of the studios or one of the lots, you're in Sofia, Bulgaria. The guy says, action, you know, and they blow up 50 canisters of plaster and gasoline uh, mimicking a B-52 arc-like strike. You know, I've seen that. I, and I just thought to myself, Jesus, something's wrong. These explosions are way too big. Um, but they, those explosions that I'm speaking of happened in actually Thailand. And uh, they were replicating a B-52 strike. What did I expect? Uh, were they within the parameters and the boundaries and the safety issues of OSHA? And I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they were just... You know, it was unbelievable. Um, my, my third night on RoboCop, Robo comes into a command center. He points his hand at something. It's going to spray gasoline at this command poster display, and it's going to ignite it. And what happened is I walked in and I pointed my hand where this spigot comes out, but some of the spray bounced off this partition and back onto me. And the effects guy is like he's hiding behind something, going three, two, one, and he ignites it, and I go up in flames. My well, the only thing that was exposed was my mouth, but I didn't shave for a week. I had no hair in my nose. I had some blistering, and they put me out pretty quick. Um, this the the UFC judge. I'm going to say his name. His name is Douglas Crosby, and I did a fire gag in a movie where the spigot was here and I was breathing fire out of my mouth. I was playing a timeless ageless monster who lived on an island off the coast of Iceland uh, Julie Christie, Helen Mirren, Sarah Polly were all in this film. It was called the unbelie it was called um, no such thing anyway three two one the f- the monster breathes fire they had all this um, effects makeup and hairspray. Nobody counted on it. My whole head went up, James. I literally went down to editing months later because I wanted to know how fast Douglas Crosby, this stunt coordinator got, he got like about 15 feet across the room with a towel and wrapped it around my head, knocking me over. And he jumped across the table to do it. And he got to me in less than one second because There's 42 frames per second, and he got to me in 23 frames because I was counting. And you just see him, and you see my head go up, boom, and he's right there. I told this story like uh, last weekend to his son. So, yeah, it can be dangerous. It can be foolishly so, foolishly, because you're, you're not curing cancer. You're not creating world peace. You're just making a movie. And to uh, to become injured like that is just foolish.
0: I did a stunt show. It's still going in Orlando. And it was a good show to watch. And it was an awesome show to learn how to be a stunt performer because it was a, a pirate show. So there was rope swings and sword fights and high falls. Wow. And there wasn't any fire in that one, but we were firing pistols and you know all kinds of stuff. But um, one of the guys that I worked with, we did this big sword fight on the mast. I think it was like almost 30 feet in the air and you had a little circus loop so you would still (laughs) fall but you'd be hanging on by your wrist because that's going to feel super awesome um but anyway he made it back off that but then tripped on the rigging bounced off the crow's nest and then went down into the high fall pit but missed the pad hit the concrete on the way and landed on his back and he broke his back but not to the point where he actually severed any any you know the spinal cord so he ultimately healed again but like you said for uh for a dinner theater show that we got paid, God, what do we get? Something like fucking sixty dollars a show or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think, you know, was was the risk worth the reward? Probably not. But this is the thing, is that there are places out there that treat their people like gold. And then there's the rest of the entertainment industry where corners are cut and safety is maybe kind of disregarded a little bit. So yeah, that was the one. You know, I was amazed. It was like an hour and a half of solid stunts as well. I mean, like you were fighting and running around for ninety-four minutes, um, sometimes like two, three times a, a night if it was a Christmas season. So yeah, I mean, kudos to all the the live action, theme park and dinner show stunt people out there because uh, yeah, that's they're the unspoken heroes. I think at the stunt world, <laughs> I think
1: they are because they come up with they come up with some crazy shit themselves. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you see some of these. I was just in Tombstone, uh, not just, uh, in August, I believe, uh, and I watched a street battle there. It was pretty good. Um, I, I was telling a story during Tombstone, during the shootout at the OK Corral. I have my right hand extended way far away from me. Um, and, and oh, I, I'm bringing my... my my chin over to the right side because I have a double load squib on the shoulder and I want it to project out that way. Three, two, one action. Bang, bang. And I have my, you know, away from it and they packed the squibs on this side. Oh, bang. So that was bad. I had to, uh, I had to agree to a double load above the heart because it can be dangerous. I said, nah, if it's going to just spray out that way, it will be fine. I'll keep my head away. Packed on the wrong shoulder. So that was, uh, they fired that fellow though. Uh, One of the other actors said, Burke, he was, he was on a plane going home before you hit the ground. (laughs) (laughs) It was just really inexcusable, but there's so many stories, depending on what your, how long your life is in this business. You have plenty of stories Uh, like myself. If you're playing military or police officers Somebody joked recently, they said, Burke, you'll probably be chasing the bad guy from a wheelchair at this point. Because, uh, you know, as an actor who plays characters who are in the police department, those types of things, are always running after somebody. Um, but anyway, <laughs> those days are coming to an end, too, <laughs> I suppose.
0: It was interesting talking to Steve off camera, you know, off mic. Um, you know, the backstory of some of the tragedies that we have on the set, obviously, you know, the Alex Baldwin film most recently, and I'm not going to disclose what was discussed, but, you know, you see the bigger picture and then you see how avoidable it was and the lack of communication. And, and again, shortcuts, you know, Brandon Lee and some of these other ones. And that's what actually Universal did a good job. They hired, I think it's Brolin, Brolin Productions. I got the name wrong. Anyway, the same guy has been teaching me for, you know, 22 years. And, they're so diligent and they tell some of the stories and it doesn't matter if, you know, if it's a rubber gun or whatever, you're not ever pointing it, you know, towards someone. And God forbid you are actually firing around like the Terminator show we used to. Terminator is, you know, supposed to be 45 degrees from t 1000s which I was. So you're taking that shot, but, you know, you get some nervous new guy and it starts getting a bit close. So you realize, yeah, all it takes is just one one momentary lapse of concentration on a set and it could be life or death.
1: Yeah, that wattage uh, that's packed into a full loaded blank will just you know blow your skin off or your skull or whatever it is that's in front of it. Um, I I don't really I'm not going to really speak to Alec or the or Rust. I wasn't there. Um, I would only let those who have worked with me in the countless um, you know firearms scenes that I've been in uh, speak to my attitude and my um you know the way i conduct myself with firearms
0: absolutely well you mentioned about having um subject matter experts on rescue me i watched a film not too long ago since we last talked called paramedic and uh with it would have been a great i think jake gyllenhaal was in it um and the idea was these two bank robbers hijacked an ambulance and that was their getaway it was kind of like speed you're in the ambulance for most of the most of the film but they must not have asked any real paramedic to actually come and advise so this woman is i mean the the dialogue is absolutely fucking nauseating for a start but also (laughs) she's doing compressions while he's still got a you know uh, a jacket on you know vest um and just everything was wrong so talk to me about that you know what's What's the the magic combination that some films get it right with the right people and and, and why do some productions still refuse to to get the real people on and add some authenticity to it?
1: I've been very lucky with the consult- you know, consultants that have been hired um in a lot of my experiences, 90% of my experiences have had the top, top, top people. You know, I I talked to you, I just mentioned that B fifty two strike that they were trying to simulate. That was from an HBO film called bright shining lie that we did. Um, Bill Paxton was the lead. He was playing uh, John Paul van, which was a civilian two-star general civilian two-star general in the later parts of the Vietnam war. Bill was a great buddy of mine and we, we think about him all the time. Anyway. Um, there was a colonel named Richard Cassidy. He's mentioned in the book. The book, Bright Shining Lie, was by Neil Sheehan. It won the Pulitzer Prize uh, recounting this particular man, John Paul Van's actions in life during the Vietnam War. Anyway, we were out there in Chiang Rai and we're stimulating a B-52 strike. And you know, here comes the NVA and boom, boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And I turned to Colonel Cassidy, who is the senior ranking expatriate in uh was it Bangkok? Yeah, he lived in Bangkok. Um I said, So Colonel, you know, is 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 this I mean, are we getting it at all? Are are we close? And he goes, What? And I said, like is this is this somewhat like it was in Doc in in nineteen seventy two? He goes, Oh no, no, no. It's nothing like it. I said, well wait a minute. <laughs> You're supposed to be here informing. Ah oh, no, you kids are having a ball. I'm not gonna say anything. So there's that side of it, you know. But then there's other sides of it like um Captain Dale Die, who worked with Oliver Stone, and he would have a boot camp. If you were playing a young Marine or a soldier or whatever type of military service you were in, he wanted you holding the rifle absolutely properly, sighting it properly, everything about what you were doing uh, absolutely properly and authentically. Because in his eyes, as not only a former Marine captain, combat decorated, uh purple heart recipient, multiple purple heart recipient. Uh he's also an actor and an artist. Do you know what I mean? So he understands that the whole amalgam of the two, his consultation and 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 uh and the script and the story is art, you know, and and and, and homage. You're you're paying tribute, you're paying honor to the men who 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 fought in that war that they were wanted to be there or did not want to be there, believed in it, did not. Besides the fact, we're telling a story here, and so we want to get it as authentically as possible. So Dale Dye, I learned so much from him in terms of um, you know, dedication to, to uh, playing it right, um, but doing a lot of the military stuff. So I've had a lot of military consultants. When I was playing General James Mattis, in generation kill. And I was really, uh, nervous about that. Uh, I had wanted to play this other Colonel part went to somebody else and I didn't think I was going to be in the series. then they called, they said, well, would you play James Mattis? And I said, no, I think I'm a little too young and that would be dishonorable. And they said, no, everybody signs off on you. So I show up in Namibia, Southwest Africa, my fourth, third time being in that country. And I'm on the chow line at lunch, and there's this jacked Marine who's in the book. He was a scout sniper, recon Marine named Rudy Reyes. And Rudy goes, yo, who are you? And I said, I'm Robert Burke. And he goes, who are you playing? I said, uh, General Mattis. Motherfucker! Oh, fuck. Oh fuck. All right, bro. You looked. You know. So he was all about <laughs> me. But I like, oh, OK. Comes the day that I'm shooting this scene in Nasseria. And uh, they're simulating mortar strikes. The 1st uh, Marine Division is bottlenecked. There's a problem. It is a historic day in this operation because this is the day that a very revered Marine colonel is being relieved of duty by myself, by my character. And, uh, and then you have like, you know, eight, ten Marines who are actually in the book who were actually there on that day with their arms crossed watching you perform and you're thinking, okay, actor boy, you know, (laughs) how do you play James Mattis? You know? So, um, I just started barking very similar to how I am on fire grind, to tell you the truth. Um, when things are not going properly, but, uh, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, everybody was a consultant on that job because everybody's mentioned in the book, um, Generation Kill, uh First Marine Division going into um going into Baghdad, Operation Desert Storm and uh Operation Rocky Freedom rather. And uh so you know, from that to like detectives, I, I had a guy, Jimmy Bodner. He does blacklist, he does a lot of shows, former Brooklyn homicide detective, guys seen it all, done it all. And I'm doing a scene where I knock on this woman's door and she opens the door. I put my foot in the door. I'm like, Hey, is, you know, Joey Smith live here. And she's like, no, he's not here and everything. So he didn't show up yet on the set. And I forget he was delayed for some reason. And then finally on the third take, I put my foot in the door, you know, just so she doesn't close it. And it cut Bobby. Yeah. I'm Jimmy I said, Hey Jimmy, how you doing? He goes, I just drove all the way in the Queens just to tell you to put your foot in the door and you put your foot in the door anyway. Okay, brother. (laughs) So it's (laughs) like, you never know, uh, these little tweaks, these, uh, little things that inform your character, the authenticity of what you're doing. I like it. I like to find out these things. Um, but again, I've been very lucky with, with the, with consultants one after the other, in a lot of films that I've done. I find it interesting to meet these people. Joe Pastone, Donnie Barasco himself. We worked with him on a show called Falcone. I got to be friends with him personally. The last time I was ever in the World Trade Center was in May of 2001. Uh, Lou Chalero was the retiring boss of the New York FBI office. And Joe calls me. He's like, hey, you be my date. You know, come on, come on, throw a suit on. So I go down, I get off the elevators, 800 FBI agents and me. And they all know I'm not an FBI agent because they all seem to know each other. Um, but he was just, it was fascinating to find out here he is, Donnie Barasco, went undercover in this in the, in the this uh, crime family uh, and uh, successfully to the point where there's old timers, in this crime family who will go went to their grave not believing he was an FBI agent, just won't hear it. He was Donnie. He was a good fellow. He was a, he, he was not an FBI agent. And that's how good this guy was. So he's, you know, Joe is still teaching at Quantico and these types of places um lecturing and fascinating to meet these type of people in your, in, in, in my career work. Amazing. Is, is he still alive now? Yeah, I spoke to him just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, good. <laughs> I, actually, I sent him. I sent him a message on uh, on, on something the other day. Said, this is not his name anymore. We used to joke when we were shooting the uh, television show, and uh, you know, we'd be all going to dinner somewhere, and there was a hit still out on him. You know, there was a contract. You know, maybe some young Turk wants to make his bones in the mafia, and maybe he takes out and. You say, Joe, walk a little bit ahead of us, will you? Come on. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, a gentleman, a consummate professional, uh, brave. You can't even, you know, uh, you can't even define what this guy brought to his dedication in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And, uh, you know, did a lot of good, I think, uh, uh, locking a lot of people up.
0: I wonder if he'd be interested in doing a podcast. I'll ask him. That'd be a hell of a story. <laughs> a long time since the film, so. Uh,
1: yeah, but people remember it. It's part of the culture, I think. Uh, uh, you know, that aspect of undercover, when you think of undercover, it's a go-to mm-hmm. immediately. How many people success- went that successfully undercover and, and you know, almost had it blow up a couple of times?
0: yeah. I had uh Jay Dobbins on. He was the one that infiltrated the Hells Angels. Amazing story. Oh. Amazing. Actually it's a sad story because then it was ATF. Um after all the stuff he did and the danger, you know, he put himself and his family in. Uh let's just say he was not well supported by his department after it all, you know, went tits up. So um little organizational betrayal going on there too.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, I remember when I when I showed up with Joe at the World Trade Center at this dinner, and it was like you were you showed up with Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. Just whispers, Joe, oh, living living hero. That's the term, living hero, because usually heroes are not living. <laughs> but um, yeah, he was uh, very to, continues to be very impressive.
0: Well, you mentioned Dale Dye, And I can't remember if we talked about this on our first interview, but I worked with Dale. He did the same thing. He did a boot camp for the Terminator show in um, Osaka, Japan. So it was him. And then Julia was our, not our director. I forget what term. We had a director, Adam Bizar, but then Julia was second in command and was one that we spent most of the time with. But So we did this kind of mini two-day boot camp with Dale. You know, so we got to do all the cadence stuff and then, you know, separate into our roles and everything. So I had him on the show when I started this podcast and it was incredible. Oh, Dale? Yes. Yeah. Actually, I want to get him back on because he's just wrapped up his new kind of um, Band of Brothers series, the next the next one that they're doing. So now this is all ramping up again. I got to reach out and see if uh, if he wants to come on. But yeah, amazing. I sat, I stood in a in a bar in Osaka years ago hearing Vietnam stories for him.
1: I have a story I can tell you, about. Uh, I'll tell it to you off camera.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, the other one you mentioned was Rudy, Rudy Reyes. He was on the show as well. And, you know, it's funny because you watch your show, Generation Kill, you know, Fruity Rudy and everything. But that is well, probably one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. I mean, spiritual and, and, and the way he is physically. But he who he is is not what you think when you first see this, you know, model looking dude, but, uh, yeah, another, another amazing human being and, and so humble after, you know, the role that he played too.
1: My fire department for 14 years did what's what well, we refer to it as a warrior appreciation event. We worked with wounded warrior, wounded warrior project, uh, uh, vet hack uh, different, different organizations. Actually, we, we now only work with organizations that don't pay their staff. But I remember one time, uh, I said, I just text or email Rudy. I said, um, cause we would get together, we would have gen, generation kill little re, mini reunions in Manhattan, you know, Chance Kelly would come down. Um, uh, a couple of the other actors whose names are escaping me. Um, Peter Sarsgaard, uh, uh, and, and we'd all get together, but I, I texted Rudy and I said, Hey, listen, we're doing this warrior appreciation event, July 14th. I don't know if you're in the New York area and, and I never heard back from him. And, and then the day comes and, you know, we had a little parade for them and then like an event where they could eat and go to different bars and just, you know, have a day at, out at the beach. And, uh, all of a sudden, the event is kicking off, and I see this dude standing by a garbage can looking at his phone. It's Rudy. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, hey, what's up? I was like, you made it. He goes, and he looked at me like the innocence of a child. He goes, yeah, of course I made it. And and the organizer was this former Marine named Gene Wu. And he goes, Gene's, Gene's my brother. Of course I'd make it. Like The the fact that I would even begin to question, would he make it or not, was absurd, Uh, And I remember that moment, the dedication, like he flew from like, I think Kansas city to LA, LA to somewhere, somewhere to New York to make this event. And he was on time. So, um, yeah, Rudy is, uh, and it was a great event. We had a, we had a blast. Uh, we had a great time. He had a great time. Um, I was proud of my department, you know, uh, 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 but he is, and I, I, we've been watching him on his new show, uh, Special Ops, I believe it is.
0: Yeah, SAS, um, who dares wins, I think it is. Is that right? You know, who dares? Yeah. yeah my,
1: my wife says, maybe if they have a geriatric, uh, you know, part, uh, uh, right, you could go. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, like, but where would I ever like really get to meet a Rudy Reyes uh, uh, except, uh, you know, in, in this life of, um, of being an actor and and being on different sets. And truthfully, one of the the things I love about acting is when I get to do something that's historic, you know, then you really get to jump in and read what happened, who they were, um, what they were like, what they experienced. Um, and, And every time I've ever done a war movie, not one time has anybody ever shot at me in anger. So you can act all you like, but you're never, ever, ever, ever going to know, um, what it's like. I, when I talk, talk to people who have been shot at the indignant indignity of it, it's like, why is that dude? You know, it's this crazy mind, uh, 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 thing where, where somebody's trying to take your life and, um, that's a whole other jump off. You know, you can, you can act all you like, but you're never going to get, you know, there somehow. Uh, but I, I'm just always, uh, in awe of, uh, you know, I remember getting off the plane in in, in Thailand and the heat and I'm like, how can anybody, I, I can't even, you know, my tummy doesn't feel good, <laughs> Like, but nobody's shooting <laughs> at me. Yeah. You know? Uh, I could barely breathe. Uh, One of the years I was in Thailand, there were these crazy fires and the sun was always gone and uh, smoke everywhere. But it was uh, even the Thai people were passing out. It was particularly hot that 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 particular year. Um, I'm just. Meandering and babbling now. Sorry, James.
0: No, you're fine. I was just t- turning over my shoulder because my dog had pushed away into my office, but my son just took her out again. She was making all kinds of noise in the background. What kind of dog, do yeah? Uh, German Shepherd. Yeah. She, oh, nice. Uh, she's uh, she's amazing. Actually, like, that's kind of a good segue. I uh, I just came back, and we were, t- we're touching um, on it before we hit record. But I just came back from England, and uh yes. I went back to take care of my daddy. He had full knee replacement um was on his own so kind of met him in london is uh staying with his his uh brother's apartment so there for a couple days drove him all the way back to to his home um and then some other stuff happened anyway so i finally kind of get him settled get on the plane in uh in london and doors are closed we're getting ready to to push off and i see Commotion, I got my my headphones on, and I look and in front of me, people are kind of just doing abnormal things. so I take my headphones off and then I look back and there's a whole crowd around this area and you know for for anyone listening okay, we know what it looks like when when there's a thing going on. Yeah. So kind of ran back there, a lady right in front of me was like, I'm a nurse. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a paramedic, you know, expecting to be flooded with with other. sinkable Sync- yeah. episode. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I've done that before. I've, I've been a medic on a plane before. Interesting. Because when they say, is there a doctor, lots of people put their hands up, but then you realize that a
1: doctor a in dentistry or podiatrist, <laughs> yeah, may not be the right
0: person for an emergency. Yeah. Um, But anyway, this was a legit cardiac arrest guy face planted oh. in the uh in the aisle and yep. so i think i was the only one from an emergency background at all on the entire plane this, the nurse was was helping she's checking the pulse and then there's another guy that kind of found his way on one of the seats and did compressions for a little bit but ended up running this code with a bunch of people that never really done this before with very limited equipment because bless the uh the crew of this plane they had to ask permission to open each piece of equipment so that wow. delayed things too so initially you handed just a, a bag valve i mean it's not a bag valve a number breather and a tank that only went up to four liters a minute so i'm like well this is not gonna not gonna work so you know we're, we're doing um doing what we need to do but but slowly equipment starts filtering in and and the people around were, were incredible for the lack of uh experience with this kind of thing you know, the AD was put on properly. Um, you know, we went through our, our sequences without being too specific. Um, then fire arrived rich, uh, initially. And in England, fire are not EMS as well, but they do have a, a BLS training. Ended right. up dragging this this poor gentleman up into the galleys. So we have more space to work. Carried on then working in. Then the medic showed up. And so I think I want to say it was like 20 minutes in of working CPR on a plane that I finally the, the medics are ready you know the airways in place and okay I think I think I need to step back so you guys can do you know what you do now yeah but that was it and it was the most jarring experience because if we were running a call you know we'd we'd clean up our gear we'd we'd shoot the shit a little bit you know we'd pack everything up <coughs> maybe we'd get time to go to actually go back to the station then you talk about it maybe over you know the dinner table but all I did was go to the air air plain bathroom wash the blood off my hands and then go take my seat again and it was it was really really weird and then time goes on i mean they, they were incredible and I, I could see that a lot of the crew were, were shaken two of them went home because we hadn't actually left yet um and then the rest of them they cleaned up and then they started serving tea and sandwiches and everything for 10 hours and i was blown away and i did actually did a post on my social media today about this whole story because i wanted to give credit to the, the people working that weren't paid to see horrible shit like we are. Um, but you could see they were shaken. So I got to kind of talk to them and you know, gave them my information and everything too. But then the next couple of days, it really shook me. And I was like, wow, this is so fucking weird. I did this for 14 years. Like, as you know, in the book, one one shift was three separate dead people. You know, one was on fire another one was rotting, you know, in the woods, a homeless person. And that was just like, oh, well, that was a shit shift, you know. <laughs> On as we go but now five years later without that support structure without a group of trained people around you without a box or a bag that you know every single compartment pocket you know you've got meds you've got your algorithms everyone's kind of doing their part it was a whole load of um imposter syndrome questioning they put in a thing called a, a gel eye gel IGel, gel it's a bls airway I'd never seen it before. So I'm like, am I bagging the right ratio now? I'm assuming it's, you know, every six, not 30 to two, um, you know, with the compression did we stopped too long. But then, you know, after the next day or two, I'm like, no, we did what we could. Everything went right considering, but you didn't have that group. So what I did in this, this video was what I realized this is what it feels like to lose a person normally. This is how mm. it's supposed to feel. He expired? Yeah, I, I don't think he made it. No, it was one of those things, to be fair,
1: when you you've seen a lot of you this, you, you yeah. can
0: tell if someone's possibly savable and someone's already like <laughs> so gone. Um,
1: or they have that artificial pulse. But, you know, uh, it's just the, the, the chemicals and the
0: telemetry keeping them. Exactly, exactly. So, so that's kind of what it was. But a really interesting perspective was when we are in the job, and the call bothers us. We're like, "What the fuck is wrong with me?" Why? And mm. it's like, and it made me realize, oh, that's how you're supposed to feel. Actually, the fact that we can clean up after a call, knowing that dispatch is going to bang us out to another one after we just scraped a 15 year old gun, you know, gunshot victim off the floor, or filleted a gangbanger with all his intestines in an ER, and you wash your shit up, and then you go out and do it again, that's abnormal. And so when you get those little moments of something bothering you, that's your humanity peering through that gap and going, mm. hey, you're still human, by the way. So I did a little video just to kind of tell that story, because I five years later, having not worn the uniform with none of the support structure that we have around us, um, it was it was crazy. And I leaned into all the the healthy coping mechanisms that I have and I did, mm. did New Calm a couple of times. I spent time with my dog and my son and, you know, two days later, we're good again. But it was really powerful. And and the reason I'm segueing into this long old monologue about my plane flight is that I can imagine that parallels probably the volunteer fire service more so than the career fire service.
1: Uh, The short answer would be yes. The first time I did compressions, uh, uh, I worked the guy 31 minutes. I think I lost five pounds of weight. We were up in an attic. It was over 90 degrees in the attic. Uh, county police officer is like, dude, I'll take over. I was like, <laughs> you know, I was just like, cooked. Um, and then the next day at the firehouse, I just happened to be there and these two, um, they were marshals. They're like, oh, is Robert Burke here? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, hey, Rob, I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I was like, hi. And they're like, so how you feeling? And I was like, what? And they're like, how you feeling? And I was like, I'm fine. Why? And they're like, well, we heard you had a, you know, uh, arrest yesterday and you worked pretty hard. And I'm like, oh, you guys are here. <laughs> you know? and so I said, and I and I was truthful. I said, I'm fine. And then they relaxed and they were funny. They're like, oh, that's good. Yeah, Jimmy over here. He's, you know, what are you, Jimmy? You're, you're 0 for 16 with compressions, right? Yeah, no, he's never saved that. And then they started being funny. But, uh, and then I had another guy, compressions, uh echo, echo call designation. Go right to the call. Go right to the call. If you're if you're and I get in there and girlfriend, six sixty-year-old girlfriend is giving compressions, but she's really not, she doesn't seem too enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Nobody in the house seems very enthusiastic about this guy on the ground. And I'm like working him like, you know, a rented mule. I'm like, not on my watch. And he inspired. But um I, those, you know, like it or not, I'm being glib and uh, I don't, not disrespectful, but I'm just saying those calls, they don't leave your mind when you're in a very public compressed place, like an airplane, it's compounded, you know, people are watching you're out of your element. If I had my, it's a, you know, there's, there's the dualistic quality of the rescue beast that's within us. You know, you're, I'm going to save this guy, but I can't save him. It's like a bad dream. I can't save him because I don't have my stuff. I don't have my guys. I'm not not—I'm not on the job anymore. So that's a really vulnerable place to be, I think, psychically. Um,
0: did you ever see the Lucas device that gives compressions by itself? That's what they took him off the plane with. And I think it was very optimistic, to be honest. Um,
1: that's I think that's the most traumatic, traumatizing. Even when I see it, I'm like, oh, my God. It's, it's a chong, 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 chong. Um, you know, it's funny. My department bought one, and within a month, we had two saves, two two legit saves with this device, you know, kept the heart beating, kept the blood flowing. Uh, I, I just think, you know, your thorax is going to be coming out the back of your head. But anyway, uh, the fact that you were equipped – to, you know, to deal with this, because you never know, it, it, it takes the can, it takes the lid off, but you never know what's going to fly out. You know, a lot of times what flies out with me is resentment that I had, you know, from from uh, former bosses or members, you know, coming at me from the back with the knife, you know, and, and that boy, I can get up, take a piss at three o'clock in the morning. That's what I remember. You know what I mean? And, that, you know, it's gotten a lot better. But for a long time, my life was really just uh, not good mentally uh, surrounding that. Um, so we, we have to be really careful. you know. Uh, my friend, Pat Brown, who passed away on 9-11, his brother was a firefighter. His brother was an emergency room physician. His brother was in New York for some 9-11 thing. Takes off in a plane. Old lady codes in the bathroom. Is there a doctor? Mike's an ER doctor. Yeah. Mike's compressing her. He's giving her this, that, the other. Plane lands. Oh, thank you, Doc. Doc, do you want to wait for a different plane? We'll put you on a... They put him on a different plane. James, somebody else had a code on on another plane.
0: Same day. I thought I was a shit (laughs) magnet.
1: I'll send you the article. My friend Mike Daly used to write for the Daily News. Two different planes, same day, one doctor, two codes. Um, but but Mike was of a he was a different type of guy. I don't think those things got to him as much. Um, maybe I'm I, I misspeaking, but uh, you know he, he we didn't laugh about it. Oh, he was on like Katie Couric had him on the Today Show. And we were joking. He he had this big mustache, and if you if you played his interview at fast forward, he looked like Speedy Gonzalez. You know, trying to get out of a – you know, um, <laughs> he was so shifty looking. Did not look like an emergency room physician. Uh, referred to himself as master of the universe. You did not die on his watch. You know, one of these super. Uh, you're not dying, baby. You're going to be fine. He was a tremendous tremendous physician. He passed away October thirtieth, twenty twenty of directly you know uh 9-11 directly related cancer um yeah so i don't know you got to be very cautious with this business um you know you and i are being a little flippant a little glib and uh uh but but we understand the seriousness of it and we accept the seriousness of it uh it's one thing to understand it and say well it's over there no i don't know no. it the scenario you describe and you know if, uh, again if you hadn't been five years away from it oh okay James on a plane wow he got to work a guy but being away from it not having your guys it's just that vulnerability that we don't like that and uh, that you I'm 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 happy for that guy he had every chance with somebody like yourself there but uh but it wasn't meant to be I suppose that day.
0: No. Well, the other thing was for me, and I've talked about this on the show, I don't know if we discussed it last time, but kind of like that one cop, I'm O for whatever, 14 years when it comes to cardiac yeah. arrest, lots of pre-code saves, you know, and and codes that went really well, but I had the brain bleeds, the GI bleeds, the shaken babies, the shat, stabbings, the shootings, you know, and, and every time I showed up like, all right, well, if you're in cardiac arrest, I hate to tell you, but you're fucked because <laughs> paramedic James is here and uh, he's over whatever now. And so there was a little thing in, in the back of my mind as well. Like, all right, well, there's another one you didn't save. And I, I've talked about this a lot because obviously you're not God. And that's an important conversation. Like we are not supposed to save everyone, but We do a disservice in the fire service and in paramedicine when we teach our people. We're like, if James and Bobby go in with a hose line, do a primary, you know, pull the kid out. uh, Every you know, they made it beautiful, good job. Or, mega code, you know, we're going to defibrillate, we're going to push, you know, Epi and go through his algorithm. And oh, you got you got rhythms back, beautiful. Um, Well, that's not what happens most of the time. Some people are lucky, you know. Where I used to work, theme park, they had a lot of code saves because it was witnessed arrest. But even then, five years, not a single one. But, you know, we do kind of set ourselves up for failure, too. And and TV and movies are, are the same, you know, shock and they wake up and they give someone a hug. And, you know, when when that's a, your expectation or the public's expectation, when the reality is they all die, that is that is another weight that you've got to kind of have an internal dialogue with and remind yourself, look, you you can't climb inside that person and, and unclog their arteries in their heart or fix their aorta or whatever it is. You can just do your best, and I think we talked about this before. If you train diligently, that will give you some peace. But if you didn't train, you know that you missed the tube or missed on you know missed a body on a primary surge. That's when it's going to haunt you even more.
1: I suppose I don't render medical care, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I've been around a lot of people who do. I I've washed out a, a, what is it? The lowest of the low CFR certified first responder class like three times because I got a job. I had to go, you know, uh, um, I had to see this very venerated CFR teacher, uh, in Suffolk County here, you know, it's COVID and we have the masks on. And and he looks at me and he's like, is that you again? I'm like, yeah, it is (laughs) like this. I'm trying to like disguise myself and get through this class. Once again, I was able to, um, You know, I'm lucky. The people that work here um, volunteer, and we have a paid paramedic. They're very top flight people. You know, they're gonna you're gonna get really super good care, concerted, intelligent um, care, uh, which is, you know, uh, you know when we drive for rescue, Um, the first time I ever jumped in on compressions. I wasn't supposed to be driving, but they said, let's go. So I just jumped in and, uh, he said, we need to start compressions. And I said, I'll jump in. I jumped in and I started compressing the guy. And, um, you know, uh, I was really self-conscious, you know, like do it right, you know, make every compression count, you know, and, and this guy's going to come back to life. And he didn't, he was, you know, he could have been expired for an hour up in that attic. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, um, you try your best uh, for uh, a favorable outcome. And the lesson will be, if it's favorable, you, you worked hard. And if it's unfavorable, uh, you tried your best. Uh, sometimes you do better than your best.
0: Yeah, exactly. There was a, a History Channel f- um, film. Uh, what was it called? Inside the Fire, was it? Um, anyway, it was a great show, or a great film, because it had career paid on call volunteer and there was a volley i can't remember what it was it was maybe kentucky or something i might get it completely wrong but they were having you know turkey fries to pay for the engine and all that kind of full-on volunteer (laughs) fire service but he made a a statement he goes every time a firefighter makes entry into a building they're taking the same risk he's like sometimes they come out with a a kid and i always stuck with me because it's the same with every time you initiate cpr every time you try and extricate someone from a car or you know attempt a rope rescue whatever it is every single time you know you're making that same exact sacrifice now some people might emerge with the child and end up on like you said katie Couric's tv show but we've all got to remember that every single time that we initiate that it's worthy and you don't have to emerge with the child you don't have to do the code save because you did everything you could to try and mitigate that situation and that's what's important
1: Two things. In Ireland, they don't give medals. After you put your hand up and put your hand down, everything you do after that is expected of you. I love that I love that too. And then I know an awful lot of city guys, FDNY. Actually, a lot of them are retired now. I have to accept that I'm 63. I don't really know as many as I used to. But- we get a job here, multiple structures, not even in our district. We're just going for mutual aid, but there's nobody there, so it's our job. And a city guy will say, how does that work? How did that work? The other night, and I'll, and I'll tell him. And he's like, listen, and he goes, yeah, well, he goes, just remember, he goes, uh, you're a volunteer. The fire isn't. you know." And I remember a guy saying that to me. That, that stuck in my head. And another guy said, Berkey boy, you'll get killed out there just as quick as, you know, quicker. Because it's a come as you are, you know. I joked on a podcast, getting salty. Uh, I made some eh, kind of a disparagement, but like you know, Joey's a florist. You can't expect him to take a door. I mean, you know, he's a florist in real life. Uh, you know, he's not very good at, at forcible entry. I mean, but you call nine one one. You didn't call for flowers. You want a door taken. You got to get in. You got to operate. Uh, I'm lucky. Uh, the guys and gals that are in our department are pretty, um, you know, conscientious and, and understand that the, the conditions here while they're you know benign in some districts, you know, a conflagration could happen here very quickly. That's what's always in my head. One go, they all go. And, uh, so we train, everybody's very good about training attitudinally, um, Boy, we had we had people come in, get through what we call firefighter one, and then go right on to firefighter two, sign up for the Joseph DiBernardo Bernardo seminar, get into the uh Eckert uh Fire uh he's a Camden guy, runs this very extensive, comprehensive uh training program. So they're trained, 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 train, 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 you know, and uh it's never gonna uh work is never gonna work against you. Do you know what I mean? it's 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 going to work for you uh composure taking your time you know making it count whatever your actions are on the fire ground that just comes with time and experience but if you're while you're training you're cognizant of you know real life uh while you're responding to automatic fire alarms and you're looking up at the building saying, what if it was ripping out of those three windows? What would I do? You know, I couldn't get, you know, there's there's hotels here. When you walk down some of the hallways, both of your shoulders are touching the hall, you know, both sides of the hall because they've been grandfathered in. They were built in the 20s. or t- and And you'd be screwed, you know. You'd be screwed if you got into a job there. You'd have to, like, make a hole in the side of the building. To get down that hallway. So, anyway, it's all by way of saying uh, how you want to play the game. You know, if you want to be as professionally proficient as possible, keep your training up, keep your bodily, you know, your physicality up. Huge important issue, I think. And I also stress that, you know, there's a lot of content out there how to train to do the job, how to physically stay in shape to do the job. And you should be doing it. You should be doing it. Because anything else less to me is irresponsible, and it's uh, it's 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 uh, it's like a slap in the face to your uh, brother and sister members.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more area, and then we'll go to some closing questions. Um, yeah. Come out of the strike now. Um, I know Wakanda Forever was one of the ones you did, uh, Boston Strangler, somewhat recently. What will what can we expect from you in this next year as you kind of wind back up again?
1: Gosh, I don't know. Um, they're not going to be cranking anything up significantly between now and the new year. It just is untenable to think that you can do that unless you have jobs like, um, you know, law and order and Chicago fire med, uh, those types of things are ensconced. They're a system, they're a machine. They just flip the switch and they can turn it on. Um, for myself, uh, you know, we'll see what comes across uh, in the new year. Um, hopefully, there'll be some um, something interesting that I can get going on. Uh, an old colleague that I started out with, Hal Hartley, will be doing a film in April called Where to Land with myself, Bill Sage, Edie Falco, Parker Posey, a lot of the actors and actors, or well, the actors who he gave. They're to. We were all colleagues at this one university. Uh, the actors were in the acting conservatory. He was in the film program. And we made films for 30 years. Uh, I did his first film, his third film, his fifth film. Uh, this man, Hal Hartley, if he called me tonight and said, I need you to do a film at two o'clock in the morning, I would go and do it. Um, it's all, it's, you know, dark humor, indie kinda of quality uh material, but it's 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 fascinating, it's high minded, it's funny as hell. Um and a lot of great performers have come out of uh his uh work. So that's gonna happen in April. But um but other than that, you know, uh uh just now the the scripts are feeding in mostly indie work. Um So I'm reading a lot of stuff, but uh, nothing very good yet. I'm just trying to keep the bar as high as
0: possible. Well, I want to move to some closing questions. It's been two years since we chatted. Um, Mm. The first one, is there a book that you love to recommend or books that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated?
1: I I read different things for different reasons. I, I read a lot of theology A lot of megalithic investigation, ancient architecture, um, history. I love history, any type of history, American world, um, Irish mythology. Um, I just read a book called um, This is Happiness by Niall Williams. And it talks about electricity coming to this West Clare, County Clare, West Clare town in Ireland in the early 50s. And it's so reminiscent of the conversations my parents used to have about Ireland because they left Ireland in the early 50s. So unless you're like a first generation Irish kid, maybe you wouldn't get such a great kick out of this. There's another guy, Kevin Corliss, My Father's Wake, another Irish. I I, I like rhythms and layers and fabric and textures of literature that I identify with. Do you know what I mean? I say, do you know what I mean a lot? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, right now I'm reading Strong Men by Ruth Ben-Gayat. She's a political commentator. I think she's brilliant. Sixteen, nineteen. Is behind me, Thomas Merton, "The Seeds of Contemplation." That's that. That's a great one. Uh, yeah, my wife says a Burke never throws away a book or a picture, so, so the pictures are on the phone They're Not, but I, I don't do Kindle or anything like that. I buy the book. I, I like uh, book, and you know what? To that point, I have to pick up my reading a little more. My. Focus has gotten a little scattered, the phone, but you know, that can take away from the focus of reading. But I, I was lucky that my parents and my sisters, my brother, we all were good, pretty good readers. Um,
0: and that's where your world, my world, opens. Brilliant. What about obviously you're in this industry. What about films and or documentaries that you've loved the last couple of years? I quite liked that Beckham
1: documentary.
0: That was really good.
1: (laughs) I don't know what it was. I just kept asking the question, why? You know, I'm not a big football, I'm not a, I'm not a football follower. Uh, You know, I I enjoy watching a good football match every once in a year, but the, um, you know, the British fans, you know, uh, I, I, and I understand the whole religious aspect to it and, cultural tribe identity and all these types of things, but man, they pull this poor guy and he has this. Very hard to describe characteristically. What you see, there's a thing he, he was, he was so formulated and and put together early on with his father and this game and these skills that was almost in his DNA and so his dna is coded to just get the football in the net and the rest is just this exterior determinant that has nothing to do with getting the ball in the net and it's almost in the dna and and i love that that he it, it weighed on him i'm sure listen i'm not going to go off this all i just thought it was uh, fisher stevens uh, did it and it was um, very well put together the tone was very, very, very impressive, I thought. Um because it was so compelling. My wife said, Do you want to watch this? Well, I guess. Then all of a sudden I'm just hooked in. So when things are possessive of these types of characteristics in a work, in a documentary, in a painting, in a music, and I'm always like, why was I so compelled? Why was I so focused? Why was I so hooked? I always, I always find it fascinating to uh, answer those questions. And then, you know, you want more of something like that. Um, but uh, that's just popped out to me. Other than that, I can't think of any movies that I've seen. I, I've, I've wanted to see, you know, Oppenheimer. and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what else. I just haven't gotten to see a lot of stuff.
0: The one with the the David Beckham, the one that really struck me was just like you said, you know, you've got this guy, world-class footballer model, you know, all the things, but, and there's one scene, I know it kind of did the rounds on social media too, but victoria beckham is on a couch being interviewed and talking about her working class upbringing and he peers oh, out the, the door the, and was like tell
1: the tell the car that your father drove that <laughs>
0: exactly. one. tell the truth tell it tell it tell it
1: and she says a Rolls Royce." thank you and he you know, exactly so.
0: so he just seemed like so down to earth and i was like i could literally probably be friends with this bloke he doesn't seem like a lot of the you know the The people that we see chasing the paparazzi, I'm not saying fame or or acting makes you a bad person, but people that chase the fame is different. And he's always been, you know, he's been on the, in the limelight a lot, but he actually seems like he just wants to just be a bloke. And I think that's, that's really endearing.
1: And I think that's exactly true. Um, But you see what you just spoke to was a moment, a very good moment, a very honest, genuine, authentic moment. Funny moment. And Francis Coppola and Martin Scorsese when they talk about editing and, and filming, so you, you have that moment. And now you want another moment attached to that moment that's real and honest. And I don't care if a guy's opening a door, that it would be genuine and honest and compelling. And the next moment, and the next, and then all of a sudden you have this string of moments, you know, and, uh, and, and that's what makes for great work. When you string them together, you know, there's no gap. Uh, that's when they usually give you those little golden trophies, you know. Um, but it's very difficult to do. My mother, in her Galway accent, used to say to me, Robert, it's going to be a good film. And I'd say, ma. We make the good ones the same way we make the bad ones. We show up, we try our best, you know. And we say, Oh, that was that was great. They pat you on the back. And then, you know, you go to the screening of it and it's like, what? It's a disaster. <laughs> or or you go and say, hey, you know, this is pretty good. Uh, you never really know. See, sometimes you get a you can get a feeling when when they were shooting um tombstone, it just was so authentic and some of the work that the other actors were doing was just so like so unbelievable unbelievably good that I felt, I said, this movie's going to turn out okay, I, I hope. Um, and it did. It blew through all of the drama and, uh, uh, you know, struggles that went on during that filming. The director, writer, producer, Kevin Jar being fired you know, four or five weeks into production, and then uh Kurt Russell just begged, borrow, steal, anything to push it through. And he uh he's the unsung hero of that film. The production, the acting, everything. Um he really just dragged it across the finish line. So yeah, uh the question is, you know, have I seen anything recently? And that's about it. Uh I can't even tell you what I watch. I watch a lot of basketball, to tell you the truth. Uh, NBA. I like the NBA. My son, my younger son got me into that. So we're watching basketball 10 years now.
0: Well, we have already discussed this and I'm not there yet, but I am writing a book that I want to turn into a series or a film. So I hope a few years from now we might be discussing, you know, working together and how we made it happen and all that stuff, because I am determined Like to me, the way that you access the minds of, most of us in the West is through the screen, and you know you you hear Band of Brothers, you hear Tombstone, you hear Platoon, or you know all these these stories that really grab someone's heart and they couldn't turn away. I feel like the fire service is due a story that's compelling, that educates people on what we do today, but also highlights other areas that that we see that most people never get to see. You know the lens that we have, so. Um yeah I'm putting it out there publicly now but that's my that's my goal one day is to to have a conversation down the road and and have it already put out.
1: Well they've seen a lot of it but they haven't really seen any of it. You know a lot of what they're shown is not the job. I mean a lot of what they're shown is not the job. There's one show no matter what the commercial for the show is, I always yell from the kitchen, it's going to blow. And then one of the actors goes, watch out. It's going to blow. It could be (laughs) anything. I mean, no matter what the call is, it could be a cardiac arrest and something's going to explode. It's always exploding. I'm like, you know, uh, I I find that to be troublesome. You know, it's just like, you want to just scream. It's like, that's not, that's, you know, and, there are ways to, to show it. I think, you know, you sit down in a production meeting and you say, okay, you know, we have a trapped mother and daughter, uh, 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 you know, how are we going to show this? And if you want to show it, show it realistically, I I think it's really easy. You know, some kid fumbling to get a space mask on, you know, properly and sliding down the stairs because the first line is already opened up and he's the only one who knows they're in that room. And, you know, the rescue guys are blocking the, you know, it's, there's a myriad of ways to show how potentially this rescue can be affected dramatically and realistically, but usually it, it never portrayed that way. Usually it's portrayed, like they say, in a, in a Hollywood way. And funny enough, ironically enough, the ones we remember are the ones that are portrayed realistically. Do you know Jason Patton? Have you had him? Uh,
0: yes, I have. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he does this, you know, the Instagram, the the, the st- satirical um, sketches about first responders, about fire service paramedics and stuff. And it's hilarious because he's going way over the top. But you know what? It's all real. It's all true. It's all based in reality. But he's going so over the top. And then he does a critique of certain of these shows where – you know, he'll stop the camera and he'll interject, hey, why don't you just open up the hose? <laughs> you know, your problems will go away. So he's he's really, really funny with his, um, you know, cut up of uh, of certain of these shows that just don't really have any basis at all, even remotely in, in the reality of, of fire service, fire response, fire ground operations, like not even remotely. Every once in a while, yeah, but how many kids are you gonna, you know, come out of the building running with? You know, how about if somebody's four hundred pounds and 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 you know they're in the stairwell with you? Then what does it look like? It doesn't look so heroic, dramatic, and heroic. No, it's very sloppy. It's very scary. It's very horrible. Um, but that's the job. That's the job. You know.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah, we, we will see. Watch the space. But um, all right. Well, then the next question. Um I'm pretty sure I asked you this and you've, you've you've sent me some people as well but since the last couple of years is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world
1: who you haven't had on already <laughs> uh, Gosh uh, I I'd have to think I'd have to think about that
0: um, you haven't had Dennis Dennis Leary not yet not yet. Yeah. See,
1: I I don't even know if he does uh, first responder, firefighter. Um, he's very humble. He's always said, "You know, I'm just the face. You guys do the job." But I, he he's he's been around the fire service for a long time since the Worcester Cold Storage fire. This man has shaken the hands and stood by and given emotional support to so many people you've no idea i mean it's just overwhelming to tell you the truth i'm not even sure if he's cognizant of all the help uh and i say emotional support and you know the laughter and the comedian and the comic aspect of it but uh his fire service and and all the money and all the material and all the training that he's supported over the years, um has gotten, you know, it, it, his service, I mean, this is going on over, you know, it's almost uh it's over two decades. Never got mission fatigue, never said, you know what, I think I've had enough. I'm not gonna do it anymore. Eh, just let it die on the vine. It's with Dennis, it's exactly the opposite. He keeps up in the ante. Like seven or eight years ago. It's like Burke, we're not having a fucking dinner anymore. We're gonna have people come to the FDNY Academy and bust their ass. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like that's what happened. So now he invites executives and companies, and you pay X amount, and you push a line, and you repel and you drag, you know, the dummy out, and you, you know, knock down three, four rooms of real fire. Uh, uh, you, you know, you respond to uh, subway emergencies. Uh, MVA extrication, you know, using the tools. So, his concept was, you know, it's easy to write a check, but if you've actually had the cutters and you know, you know, you sweat all day long at the fire academy. Next time you hear a siren, you got a little more skin in the game. You know what I mean? You're you're a very, very, very sensitized and cognizant to what goes into being a first responder. So, uh, so he is a guy. I cannot say enough. Um, you know uh, uh, in the fire service community he is, he's is venerated and again you know you wouldn't think he, he, you wouldn't say he's a humble, the guy is a humble guy because I don't think he's aware I don't think he sits down and thinks about it to tell you the truth he just keeps doing it um, And and for any man to never have fatigued because I've seen it I've seen it with veterans I've seen it with a lot of different people who you know their intentions are good but they flame out they get they, they don't want no, i did my piece that's that's not been his experience he just keeps pushing it more and more and more and um yeah so i i i would think he would be a great guest beautiful
0: yeah and i'm working on on a few and uh you know obviously that would be amazing if 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 we made it happen again like you said very busy and, and pulled a thousand ways but uh i think him obviously steve buscemi um, You know, Gary Sinise, some of these people that have been so embedded in fire and military, um, you know, it'd be great to hear some of their stories, because like you said, they're, they are humble, but I don't think they realize how grateful our communities are for what they've done. So it wouldn't be. A, and what was it like? Horace mm-hmm. Gump, it would actually be, you know, talk to me about and how did you become this amazing human when so many people are self-serving and you've been altruistic with your position? Those are the kind of views I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah, you, you, two great examples: uh, C. Buscemi and uh, Gary Sinise. Gary played Lieutenant Dan and uh, probably met a you know a, a bunch of you know wounded uh, veterans and disabled uh, veterans, and and then just you know something probably clicked, you know. And and I I totally identify with that. He has been, I can't even say enough about. I used to think there was six or seven of the guy because one minute he's in Afghanistan, the next minute he's building a house and you know, Pennsylvania, the next minute, you know, he would just seem to be everywhere. Uh, Really super effective, getting a lot done. Um, And again, no mission fatigue keeps up in the ante. Uh, And the same thing with Steve Buscemi and his work with uh, Friends of Firefighters. Um, He always turns out for Dennis Leary at the FDNY Academy each year. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, when you're directly affected Sometimes uh, by loss, you know, you have to make sense of the loss. And, and that that's what informs, you know, Dennis lost his cousin, uh, Jeremiah Lucy, and, uh, you know, his good friend, uh, Firefighter Spade. And, um, yeah, so that loss, you have to make sense of it. And action is a good way to make sense. You know, you can say, oh, I miss Jimmy. Well, yeah, you know. Uh, maybe you can show me how much you miss them rather than tell me. And and all those men, uh, Leary, Sinise, and, and Bashemi are men of action, I believe.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you. What do you do to decompress these days?
1: <laughs> uh, uh, I'm at the firehouse a lot. <laughs> I have contractors who drive by and say, "Hey, Bob, I'll give you a job. I'll, I'll pay you to do." It. Yeah, um, I train. I work out a lot. Uh, decompression. Uh, I'm gonna let the ocean get a few more degrees colder, and then we'll go for swims, winter swims. Um, I like doing that. I started doing that with my sons. Uh, decompress. Well, I live on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, and all I got to do is go outside and walk on that beach, and you know, you're decompressed. Uh, I, I, you know, yard work, housework, carpentry, uh, that type of stuff. But I like the I like the service. Like we were just in the firehouse, we're getting this new bay door, and the place is a wreck. Uh, We're cycling off engines for maintenance. Uh, Put together these new racks for our gear you know and had to transport everybody's gear properly onto the new racks and just you know uh, just being over there working and doing stuff i really enjoy it um it's fun it's fun it's community it's 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 fellowship it's uh 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 you know a little bit of ball bracket (laughs) so it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun
0: beautiful well for people listening where are the best places to find you online
1: James Comey, the former head of the FBI, said, The internet is like a large dark parking lot that you might, you know, that you should be very wary about walking. So I don't really push that aspect. You find me, you find me. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, very circumspect about uh, a lot of it. You know, it's, oh, Jimmy has uh, 100,000 followers. Yeah, well, you know, 70,000 of them are robots, you know, it's like, or bots of some type. It's a very strange prospect. So I try to keep my foot on the brake. Beautiful.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much. It's been another great conversation, arguably better than the one that we deleted. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah,
1: we'll see. What happened? I I can't remember. I was exhausted. I remember that day, and I remember just trying to come up with uh, answers, and I just wasn't feeling myself.
0: Yeah, well, I wasn't on the other end. I forget now. I think I'd done a load of recordings prior to... I think going and knowing I was going to be gone for a few weeks. And so you know, oh, I had right, front loaded right, right. it as well. So it was just both of us being tired. But this is a beautiful thing about this. We can have a great conversation. It doesn't matter if it's recorded or not. And we're like, do you want to do another one? Yeah, let's do another one.
1: That code was out of Heathrow or Gatwick? Uh, Heathrow,
0: yeah. Heathrow. Yeah. Jeez
1: Louise. And what airline were you flying?
0: Uh, Virgin, Virgin Atlantic. Virgin. And they, again, amazing respect to all the the men and women that were on there too went home and respect to them for knowing that they needed to go boo their families at that point and then again huge Absolutely. respect for people that, that stayed and you know and then huge respect to the the people on the plane too because from what they told me the people that were working they said that the whole you know passenger group everyone was super understanding empathetic as well so i i got to see humanity that day and a little part of the video i made was like that's 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 humans. That's what we're supposed to be. We need community, not division. Why is that
1: true? You know, uh, yeah. Wow, what a what an experience to have had. Um, well, you did your part. You tried that day, so good man. Good man. You could have. You could have just sat in your seat and just said, "I'm not in the game anymore." But you didn't. So.
0: Yeah, I don't think we have that capacity in this job. That's why I never say I'm a retired firefighter. You know, if you pass a wreck or, you know, a kid's choking, you're not going to be like, well, I'm collecting my pension, which I don't have, by the way. But if I did, you know. My so. wife was like, w-
1: we can't have one more fire extinguisher in our car. Okay? Like, <laughs> I've just, got the whole
0: rescue like, Randy set up in mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. She said, the, 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 lithium ion you know these they're impervious to chem anyway so it's like unless you're carrying copious amounts of water you're not going to be effectual but um anyway well james really good to speak with you and uh glad your father is doing better and that you were able to to be there for him super important and uh glad you're doing okay as per the fallout from that plane ride